Section 33 of The Book of San Marco Polo, the Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Book of San Marco Polo, the Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 1, by Rosticello da Pisa. Translated by Henry Yule. Book 2nd part one chapters one to four part one the khan his court and capital chapter one of kublai khan the great khan now reigning and of his great puissance now am i come to that part of our book in which i shall tell you of the great and wonderful magnificence of the great khan now reigning by name kublai khan khan being a title which signifieth the great lord of lords or emperor and of a surety he hath good right to such a title, for all men know for a certain truth that he is the most potent man, as regards forces and lands and treasure, that existeth in the world, or ever hath existed, from the time of our first father Adam until this day. All this I will make clear to you for truth in this book of ours, so that every one shall be fain to acknowledge that he is the greatest lord that is now in the world, or ever hath been and now you shall hear how and wherefore. Chapter 2 Concerning the Revolt of Nayan, who was uncle to the great Khan Kublai. Now this Kublai Khan is of the right imperial lineage, being descended from Dingis Khan, the first sovereign of all the Tartars, and he is the sixth lord in that succession, as I have already told you in this book. He came to the throne in the year of Christ, 1256, and the empire fell to him because of his ability and valour and great worth, as was right and reason. His brothers, indeed, and other kinsmen disputed his claim, but his it remained, both because maintained by his great valour, and because it was in law and right his as being directly sprung of the imperial line. Up to the year of Christ now running, to wit 1298, he hath reigned two and forty years, and his age is about eighty-five, so that he must have been about forty-three years of age when he first came to the throne. Before that time he had often been to the wars, and had shown himself a gallant soldier and an excellent captain. But after coming to the throne he never went to the wars in person save once. This befell in the year of Christ 1286, and I will tell you why he went. There was a great Tartar chief, whose name was Nayan, a young man of thirty, lord over many lands and many provinces, and he was uncle to the emperor Kublai Khan of whom we are speaking. And when he found himself in authority, this Nayan waxed proud in the insolence of his youth and his great power, for indeed he could bring into the field three hundred thousand horsemen, though all the time he was liegeman to his nephew, the great Khan Kublai, as was right and reason. Seeing then what great power he had, he took it into his head that he would be the great Khan's vassal no longer, nay more he would fain wrest his empire from him if he could so this nayan sent envoys to another tartar prince called kaidu also a great and potent lord who was a kinsman of his and who was a nephew of the great khan and his lawful liegeman also though he was in rebellion and at bitter enmity with his sovereign lord and uncle now the message that nayan sent was this that he himself was making ready to march against the great Khan with all his forces, which were great, 
and he begged Kaidu to do likewise from his side, so that by attacking Kublai on two sides at once, with such great forces, they would be able to wrest his dominion from him. And when Kaidu heard the message of Nayan, he was right glad thereat, and thought the time was come at last to gain his object. So he sent back answer that he would do as requested, and got ready his host, which mustered a good hundred thousand horsemen. Now let us go back to the great Khan, who had news of all this plot. CHAPTER Three, HOW THE GREAT Khan MARCHED AGAINST Nayan. When the great Khan heard what was afoot, he made his preparations in right good heart, like one who feared not the issue of an attempt so contrary to justice. Confident in his own conduct and prowess, he was in no degree disturbed, but vowed that he would never wear crown again if he brought not those two traitorous and disloyal Tartar chiefs to an ill end. So swiftly and secretly were his preparations made that no one knew of them but his privy council, and all were completed within ten or twelve days. In that time he had assembled good three hundred and sixty thousand horsemen and one hundred thousand footmen, but a small force indeed for him, and consisting only of those that were in the vicinity. For the rest of his vast and innumerable forces were too far off to answer so hasty a summons, being engaged under orders from him on distant expeditions to conquer diverse countries and provinces. If he had waited to summon all his troops, the multitude assembled would have been beyond all belief, a multitude such as never was heard of or told of, past all counting. In fact, those three hundred and sixty thousand horsemen that he got together consisted merely of the falconers and whippers-in that were about the court. And when he had got ready this handful, as it were, of his troops, he ordered his astrologers to declare whether he should gain the battle and get the better of his enemies. After they had made their observations, they told him to go on boldly, for he would conquer and gain a glorious victory, whereat he greatly rejoiced. So he marched with his army, and after advancing for twenty days they arrived at the great plain where Nayan lay with all his host, amounting to some four hundred thousand horse. Now the great Khan's forces arrived so fast and so suddenly that the others knew nothing of the matter for the khan had caused such strict watch to be made in every direction for scouts that every one that appeared was instantly captured thus nayan had no warning of his coming and was completely taken by surprise insomuch that when the great khan's army came up he was asleep in the arms of a wife of his of whom he was extravagantly fond so thus you see why it was that the emperor equipped his force with such speed and secrecy chapter four of the battle that the great Khan fought with Nayan. What shall I say about it? When day had well broken, there was the Khan with all his host upon a hill overlooking the plain where Nayan lay in his tent, in all security, without the slightest thought of any one coming thither to do him hurt. In fact, this confidence of his was such that he kept no vedettes whether in front or in rear, for he knew nothing of the coming of the great Khan, owing to all the approaches having been completely occupied, as I told you. Moreover, the place was in a remote wilderness, more than thirty marches from the court, though the Khan had made the distance in twenty, so eager was he to come to battle with Nayan. And what shall I tell you next? The Khan was there on the hill, mounted on a great wooden bartizan, which was borne by four well-trained elephants, and over him was hoisted his standard, so high aloft that it could be seen from all sides. His troops were ordered in battles of thirty thousand men apiece, and a great part of the horsemen had each a foot-soldier armed with a lance set on the crupper behind him, 
for it was thus that the footmen were disposed of, and the whole plain seemed to be covered with his forces. So it was thus that the great Khan's army was arrayed for battle. When Nayan and his people saw what had happened, they were sorely confounded, and rushed in haste to arms. Nevertheless, they made them ready in good style, and formed their troops in an orderly manner. And when all were in battle array on both sides, as I have told you, and nothing remained but to fall to blows, then might you have heard a sound arise of many instruments of various music, and of the voices of the whole of the two hosts loudly singing. For this is a custom of the Tartars, that before they join battle they all unite in singing, and playing on a certain two-stringed instrument of theirs, a thing right pleasant to hear. And so they continue in their array of battle, singing and playing in this pleasing manner, until the great nakar of the prince is heard to sound. As soon as that begins to sound, the fight also begins on both sides, and in no case before the prince's nakara sounds dare any commence fighting. So then, as they were thus singing and playing, though ordered and ready for battle, the great nakara of the great Khan began to sound, and that of Nayan also began to sound, and thenceforward the din of battle began to be heard loudly from this side and from that, and they rushed to work so doubtedly with their bows and their maces, with their lances and swords, and with the arblasts of the footmen, that it was a wondrous sight to see. Now might you behold such flights of arrows from this side and from that, that the whole heaven was canopied with them, and they fell like rain. Now might you see on this side and on that full many a cavalier and man-at-arms fall slain, insomuch that the whole field seemed covered with them. From this side and from that such cries arose from the crowds of the wounded and dying, that had God thundered you would not have heard him. For fierce and furious was the battle, and quarter there was none given. But why should I make a long story of it? You must know that it was the most parlous and fierce and fearful battle that ever has been fought in our day. Nor have there ever been such forces in the field in actual fight, especially of horsemen, as were then engaged, for taking both sides there were not fewer than seven hundred and sixty thousand horsemen, a mighty force, and that without reckoning the footmen, who were also very numerous. The battle endured with various fortune on this side and on that from morning till noon. But at last, by God's pleasure and the right that was on his side, the great Khan had the victory, and Nayan lost the battle and was utterly routed. For the army of the great Khan performed such feats of arms that Nayan and his host could stand against them no longer, so they turned and fled. But this availed nothing for Nayan, for he and all the barons with him were taken prisoners, and had to surrender to the Khan with all their arms. Now you must know that Nayan was a baptized Christian, and bore the cross on his banner, but this naught availed him, seeing how grievously he had done amiss in rebelling against his lord, for he was the great Khan's liegeman, and was bound to hold his lands of him like all his ancestors before him. End of section 33